welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of April 6th. Still all about coronavirus this last week, and I'm sure that's what's on tap for us for the next week. I will cover a bunch of news articles, most of them are coronavirus related, and also want to share just a couple of things that are on the amdis.org listserv. Always find those conversations really interesting. It's a great barometer for what are other CMIOs up to and what they're doing. Right now, I can tell you, it sounds like most of us have our telehealth programs up and off the ground, and now we're shifting more towards how do we handle telehealth that's in the hospital. So we've got the, from the clinic, to the patient, but now how do we do provider to provider or from people that are in the room to those who are outside of the room so that you can reduce the PPE burn? And then there's the end of life use case of how do you bring telehealth and make it available for families who are most likely not being allowed into the hospital at all to reduce their exposure and to reduce them exposing our staff but they want to say their final goodbyes. And so how do you bring them in? And I know at our facility, we're certainly tackling those issues, trying to figure out how in the world do you get iPads these days, because that's proving to be difficult. Cameras and microphones are at a premium. And then you got to protect these tools. You need to be able to disinfect them in between uses to make sure that they're not being the vector that's carrying disease from one room to the next. So all interesting challenges. I think those have been the most exciting things that I've seen on the uh, AMDIS listserv this week. For those of you who are keeping score and looking for graphs that you can use to help your understanding of what the virus is doing, I've been using covidtracking.com uh, backslash data backslash US dash daily. And that gives me a nice spreadsheet. It gives it to me by state as well as a cumulative for the whole US. The one I really like is 91-divoc.com. And their COVID visualization, I like because it gives you the log scale, which really helps me understand what is the rate of change. Are we truly flattening that curve? And you can look for the entire United States against the rest of the world. But more important to me, really, what is my state doing? What are the surrounding states doing? And then hopefully you're checking your own state Department of Health website, where by county you can see what's going on. Because you're in a state the size of Texas, Florida, California, New York. What's going on in one part of the state may absolutely have no indication of what's going on in the next. So by county is really important information. If you've got a great source for COVID-19 tracking, let me know. I'm always interested and I'll certainly share it with others. So the first story I'm going to cover today is out of EHR Intelligence, how the coronavirus could push health IT to EHR interoperability by Christopher Jason, April 2nd, 2020. As most of you know, the ONC published its final rule in early March, right before coronavirus was significantly spiking in the United States. And I imagine many hospitals are having their focus being on taking care of patients right now, not so much on interoperability, but there is an impact here. And 
just to read you a few sentences from the article, this is a quote from a professor at Dartmouth. If electronic health records had the well-defined interfaces necessary for intercompatibility, such as FHIR, it would be easier to connect and create an ecosystem of third-party service providers. Providers would not be running into patient data exchange issues, especially now that providers are under extreme duress during the pandemic. And I know from just a quick anecdotal story, one of my buddies is in a hospital where a patient came down from New York and actually left New York to get away from the virus, not realizing that they were bringing it with them and then got symptomatic in, in my friend's hospital who then couldn't get access to the medical records they needed in New York where the patient was normally being treated because they're on a different electronic health record and there's no HIE that was connecting the areas. So they were at a disadvantage when treating this patient and we can do better than that as a country. And I think the ONC has the right idea. It's just a matter of how fast can we do it and with the current crisis, I don't see a lot of people putting a lot of focus on interoperability, but it will make a difference for some patients. Most healthcare is local, but some people move around and when they do and they get sick, it would be great to be able to understand what's been done with them before. I'll read you another two quotes from the article here. The coronavirus pandemic underscores the potential deadly implications of the lack of intercompatibility of electronic health records and the need for tremendous innovation and agility of open platforms. However, for this vision of innovation and data exchange to be realized, governing bodies, including the federal government itself, must require that all electronic health records, no matter their brand, work with one another, and specifically that tools like FHIR, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources APIs, be deployed across the industry. Next article, also out of EHR Intelligence. EHR use demands a major factor for clinician burnout in cardiology. This also by Christopher Jason on April 1st, 2020. Cardiologists who are experiencing clinician burnout and stress are more likely to have high EHR use outside of the workplace, according to a survey from the American College of Cardiology's annual scientific session together with World Congress of Cardiology. The survey, which had over 2,000 respondents, found that over 35% of cardiologists are experiencing burnout, while 45% said that they are stressed. And this is self-reported. I don't think they were using any kind of burnout scale here. Respondents who said they were burnt out and stressed are more likely to bring up a lack of control over workload, insufficient documentation time, and a hectic work environment. This most likely stems from documentation demands as a part of EHR use. And then they go on to talk about the number of hours worked and the correlation with symptoms of exhaustion. And so you just hear some numbers, 41% who worked more than 60 hours experienced exhaustion, while 30% of respondents who worked between 40 and 60 hours felt symptoms of burnout. And then for cardiologists who worked less than 40 hours a week, only 18% felt burnout symptoms. Yes, this makes sense. We know that the EHR is not the only factor in burnout. How hard providers are pushing themselves may be a very big contributing factor. The EHR is not such a tough beast when you have 30 to 40 minutes per patient. When you have 10 minutes per patient, it demands a lot more knowledge and you've got to be really nimble in how you use it. So it's Interesting that they single out cardiologists here. Obviously, it's from a specialty society, so they're going to be talking about their own people. 
we do know that burnout affects different specialties in different ways, and that may very well be related to regulatory issues and the demands placed on them by external quality measures, particularly thinking about pediatrics and primary care in general. I think cardiologists do struggle, though. At least that's been my experience in the organizations I've been with. And I think it has to do with the pressures of the amount of volume they're trying to see. They are in high demand. They're trying to keep availability for their patients open. And so they're trying to see a huge number of patients and they can run behind. And once they start to run behind, then they're not finishing their notes. And that leads to time after hours and then trying to remember what in the world you did to that patient, which I think can be very frustrating for providers. So part of this is self-inflicted and some of it is inflicted by the system, a fee-for-service system that is promoting as much volume as possible, as many procedures as possible, is going to have a certain burnout just inherent to the system. Sometimes you get what you create. All right, back to coronavirus. This one's out of Healthcare IT News, and it's by Fred Bizzoli, April 2nd. How COVID-19 is impacting hospitals' IT purchasing decisions. A few lines from the article. As provider organizations face a surge of new cases or anticipate capacity challenges in the near future, they're reconsidering the speed with which they can conduct current implementations because of limitations in IT staff capacity and the heavy demands that high patient loads are placing on clinical staff. Looking ahead, some providers also may see future implementation efforts delayed because organizations lack the bandwidth now to support the often long and arduous process of making future purchases. However, some forms of technology, particularly those that support telehealth services, are in hot demand as they prove their worth during the national epidemic, says experts who assess information technology adoption by the nation's healthcare providers. Here's an interesting line. The most impacted area of clinical informatics are the chief medical information officers and chief nursing information officers. They are being overwhelmed with the need to take care of the present need. That could impact the course of future implementations because those folks are being diverted from longer term strategies, he added. There is definitely distraction that will lead to future delays. And that's coming from someone from class. And the final issue they talk about here is financial. There is a lot of financial uncertainty. That is a concern that hospitals are going to lose money on every COVID case they treat. There's plenty of concern out there what that will mean for our financial impact. We're seeing those organizations where we can delay an investment if we can safely do so. I think all of those are great points. And if you had your pet project geared up for some time this summer, perhaps, think about it. Will operations be ready to rally behind your cause and help you with whatever your pet project was? I think you're going to be facing some frustration if you're swimming against the tide here. You really got to watch your timing around these projects. Many of them are still very important. Doesn't mean they don't get done. You may have to scale back. You may have to go a lot slower or just decide to postpone it altogether. By the same token, I think our IT resources are under strain, but that should be front-loaded. In theory, they should get a whole bunch of free time coming up because they had to do a whole lot of stuff to get stuff in place before the surge happens. Once the surge is happening, 
it's too late. If you don't already have all your departments made up and all your new ICUs developed, well, that's going to be very hard to get them in place now. There are efforts being made to convert hotels into convalescent units, and you may very well need to get instances of your EHR over there. So it may very well be that IT is not off the hook yet. But I'm hoping that they're going to go out of this crisis mode at some point and be able to transition back to some sense of normality. We have upgrades that still need to be done. There's maintenance that has to happen. And then there are still the general housekeeping that happens with an EMR that we all know and love and do every day. And then finally, that financial piece, that's critical. Your CFOs right now are probably not showing it, but they certainly are in a state of concern. If you're in a fee-for-service model, you canceled elective surgeries for weeks, maybe even months in order to make capacity. And then you're bringing in these COVID patients. These are not going to be particularly well reimbursed. You are keeping them on a vent. Medical patients on ventilators and ICUs generally are money losers for most health systems. And they're very expensive in how we apply care to them as we attempt to save their lives. And the length of stays tend to be long. So trying to deploy a new IT thing that's a nice to have instead of a absolute have to have, I think it's going to be a challenge for all of us over the next probably 12 to 18 months. I don't think this is a short-term problem. This is going to impact budgets. I don't see the federal government making every hospital completely financially whole due to this crisis. I think we're going to end up taking a bit of this on the chin. It's going to have a big impact on healthcare. Next article. Also out of healthcare IT news from Bill Sawicki. This is a survey, Americans' perceptions of telehealth in the COVID-19 era. And so most of you have experienced this where people are suddenly interested in telehealth who may not have been interested before, and that may be provider or that may be patient. So here's a few lines from the article. The rapid spread of coronavirus is taxing traditional methods of healthcare delivery. The sheer number of suspected cases of the virus, the pace at which it is spreading, and the desire to have as many people as possible practice social distancing or shelter in place have made it more challenging for individuals to receive care in a traditional in-person setting. So Clearlink, a marketing company focused on customer experience, recently surveyed 2,000 adults from around the United States to assess their perceptions of and experiences with telehealth in the age of COVID-19. Now listen to this. Of those surveyed, 1,441 potential respondents indicated that they were not familiar with telehealth, and those respondents were not qualified to complete the survey. That's a huge percent who have no idea, I guess, what telehealth is, or didn't admit to knowing what telehealth is. They go on in the article to say that few have actually tried it, about 19%, and of that group, fully one quarter fell within the 25 to 34 age group. Conversely, of the group that said they would never consider telehealth, nearly one third were age 55 and older, which feels about right to me. As we're setting up telehealth and we're seeing those who are saying yes versus no, age definitely is a factor. You can get surprised. There can be 85 year olds who have the latest iPad and by all means are happy to connect, but 
generally it's the 25 year old who has the latest gizmo. Another line from the story here, an overwhelming amount of those who have tried telehealth services stated they were satisfied enough with the experience that they either already have or will consider scheduling another one in the future. Nearly two thirds of those who have already had a telehealth appointment have had more than one. And the things that they're liking about this is the ability to get care without having to hang out with other sick people. 38% of all respondents said that and 36% prefer the potential of keeping an appointment without having to commute to a clinic. An additional 12% found the ability to schedule same-day care appealing. More than 40% of respondents were concerned about the ability to get proper treatment or a diagnosis in a virtual setting. About one-third of respondents say that they don't believe it's possible for comparable telehealth care, but that's a good option for initial consultations or basic care. They were describing that it was for minor illnesses and less serious items that don't require face-to-face -face care. Two-thirds of respondents say that COVID-19 has increased their willingness to try telehealth in the future, and fully one-quarter of respondents had not considered this as an option before. So this is really interesting to me. Telehealth was not seen as a tool that providers want to use. I found more provider resistant than patient resistance. And today that's pretty much gone because you can't see your patient really. Most offices are either closing or limiting, certainly limiting their ability for patients to come in and potentially spread disease to their staff or the other way around for staff to spread disease to vulnerable patients. So the provider's reception to the tool has significantly improved. There are still some who have the ability to do telephone visits and really are not into the video visit part. And since telephone's getting some coverage by health insurance, they're fine with doing telephone calls. And so they're opting for that. It'll be interesting to see how many of these visits are actually going to turn out to be video visits. So we'll have to see where that goes. I also think it's important to note that a huge portion of the population was not familiar with telehealth. We have a job to do from a PR and marketing standpoint to get patients to engage with this service. We need them to feel that they're getting equal care, that it's just as good for particularly for things like psychiatry, diabetes education, management of chronic diseases. A lot of that does not need to be done in person and we can successfully do by telehealth. And I think we've put this awe around the stethoscope and the magic touch of our hands that most of us know 90% of the diagnosis is going to be made by the history. The physical will add some supporting evidence 10% of the time, but most of the time we don't need to touch the patient. We do it and we do it every visit and we all know why. And that's because if you wanna to get to that 99214, you need to, do a full physical exam on that patient and the patients have gotten used to it and that's what they expect and they feel shortchanged when they don't get it. So there's an education part that we all need to do. Next, OCR suspends some HIPAA regulations in response to COVID-19. This comes out of Healthcare Dive, April 3rd. Most of you are already aware that the OCR had said, yeah, we're going to kind of turn a blind eye if you have to go out and use FaceTime or some other tools, just make the telehealth thing work. They have further said that it is partially suspending its enforcement of HIPAA in a move to free up the information flow and coordinate 
of public and private sectors response to coronavirus outbreak. And there's a line in here which helps me understand this better. The CDC, CMS, and state and local health departments need quick access to COVID-19 related health data to fight this pandemic. They don't want HIPAA to be in the way of the communication and flow of data to the state governments and the health departments. That's where this current piece is coming from. So the initial response that we heard was just to get telehealth off the ground and up and running, get the regulatory problems out of the way. This one is about data. And the final article, this one I found interesting. It comes out of Healthcare Dive again. It was published on March 31st by Rebecca Pfeiffer. And telehealth, comma, retail clinic use increasing in pivot towards lower priced medical delivery services. So this data was collected before coronavirus hit. And it's talking about what was going on in 2019. They're talking about how telehealth use grew 12%, retail clinic use grew 10%. Those numbers are meaningless right now. Telehealth numbers are probably up hundreds of a percent. And in-office ER use, our ER utilization is significantly down. I'm sure many of you have that as well. Patients don't want to come to the ER. They're afraid of getting exposed, sometimes to their detriment. I'm hearing stories of patients with MIs that they decided to ride it out at home. So I think urgent cares are probably going to be pretty busy. I don't know how a retail clinic would fair in this current model. They don't have the PPE. They are going to have a very hard time disinfecting their areas. I think it's a lousy idea to put coronavirus patients in a retail clinic. So I'd much rather see those patients. Honestly, telehealth would be the best thing and uh, not exposing themselves to an entire pharmacy. So they go on to say ERs accounted for more than 2% of all medical claims in 2017 and 2018. Urgent care centers accounted for more than 1% of all medical claims, and retail clinics accounted for less than 0.1%. So although retail clinic numbers are rising, they're still meaningless. The type of care that's being done there is really on the mild end. It's still cough, cold, runny nose. I love the fact that it's more convenient for patients, but it probably makes no difference if they got seen or not. They didn't need the Z-Pack that we gave them anyway and these people would recover no matter what we did. So I don't believe we're significantly expanding access to care through the use of retail clinics. I believe we expanded access to a segment of the population that probably didn't need it. I don't think we're taking care of mental health issues in the retail clinics, which is really what we need. And I think we will wrap it up there. Again, I hope you are being safe, that you have enough supplies, and that as a CMIO, you are getting some degree of rest. It has been incredibly busy for all of us. For those of you who are writing me letters and sending me comments and suggesting guests, again, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to do that out of your busy schedules. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.